Alrighty guys, welcome to another Thursday night with Seesock. Great to be back. Uh, my name's Kyle. Uh, I feel like I've been gone, so I gotta reintroduce myself. I've been gone all week and it's so awesome to be back. And I'm glad the room filled up a little bit more. We are talking about something very special tonight. Read the title. Look at your page and read the title all together. Ready, set, go. Alright, Common Faith. Common Faith here. Very special. Um, I was looking up the definition of common, and um, I want to hit this right off the bat because I think probably um, some people in this room, I don't want to look at uh, hands or take a vote, but I know, I guarantee that some people in this room probably saw the title and probably went, eh, common faith, all right. I mean, I was at the internship training, you know, I kind of, I heard this one, or, you know, common faith, not that special. It's common. It's just the common faith. You know, it's kind of like what you got to do to cover your bases, just to kind of make sure, like, you know, you're orthodox, and uh, you're not in trouble, you're not crossing the line. Um, and so, I want to I give you the definition. What does common mean? And what do we mean when we say the common faith? And what do we, what do we not mean? Which is, if you have that thought, you saw the title, saw, eh, common faith. Nothing, nothing too exciting tonight, you know, it's just the common faith. Anybody think that? I know you're not raising your hand. I know some of y'all thought that. All right, common means belonging equally to, belonging equally to, or shared equally by all. And of course, this is all Christians, everyone who has the faith. Belonging equally to, or shared equally by all, all Christians. And common is where we get, you know, the root word for common is where we get communion, which is, you know, a sharing together. And so what we're talking about with the common faith is this is what all Christians share equally together as the basis of their faith. Okay? So if you look at the American Heritage Dictionary, which is the dictionary I recommend you to use. It's the dictionary I use. American Heritage Dictionary. Don't just go to dictionary.com indiscriminately using whatever definition you see. That's the first definition. If you scroll down to the fifth definition, you get this for common. What does common mean in the fifth definition? And I think this is sometimes what we hear when we see the phrase common faith. Not distinguished by superior or noteworthy characteristics. Not distinguished by superior or noteworthy characteristics. Not distinguished. So we think common faith, eh, it's... it's of no special quality. That's the second part of that definition. Of no special quality. We do not mean that when we mean talk about the common faith. We're talking about what is equally shared and possessed by all Christians. And, you know, mostly in society, in our culture, when something's common, when, when, when something is widely available, widely possessed, the value goes down, right? That's why gold traditionally has been valuable, because it's rare. And that's why platinum... Is more valuable because it's more rare. Did you know that? Platinum's more rare. You know, that's why you got the records, right? You go platinum, it's better than going. Do they even have a gold? Yeah, yeah they've got a gold. So the, even though the common faith is common, it's equally shared by all. Hopefully, we see tonight how valuable these points are, how rich, how profound, how deep, how inspiring, and even how mysterious these points are. Common faith is not something simple. It's not something um, ordinary. And there's the danger that common, the common faith to us would become familiar, which kind of oh, is the common faith. Yeah, I know the points, the Bible, God, Christ. 
And common all of a sudden to us becomes just a familiar thing. We all know the phrase familiarity breeds. Oh, you guys need to read more. Familiarity breeds contempt. Contempt. Familiarity breeds. That's why they say don't live with, you know, someone who's like your BFF. Because a lot of times you're so familiar, it breeds contempt. The common faith shouldn't become familiar to us to where we kind of despise it. And then we devalue it, and it just becomes kind of ordinary. So everyone got what common faith means? Common? Now let's look at the word faith. What does faith mean? In the Bible, faith has two denotations. We're either talking about the objective faith or the subjective faith. There's only one Greek word for faith, pistis. But based on the context, we're either talking about something objective or something subjective. The objective faith is the things in which we believe. And that's what we're talking about tonight. The things we believe. That's the objective faith. Subjective faith is our action of believing. Okay? Very simple. So the objective faith is the things in which we believe. And that is what we're talking about when we talk about the common faith. We're talking about the beliefs that all Christians equally possess and equally share. But the amazing thing is, in the Bible, if you study faith, objective faith produces subjective faith. This is very mysterious. Objective faith produces subjective faith. Romans 10, 17 is a verse you can write down. It says, faith, and this is subjective faith, our believing ability, faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. And the word of Christ is a accumulation of objective faith. So faith, our believing ability, when you were not a Christian, you had no ability to even believe in God until somebody presented you some of the objective faiths that Jesus became, God became a man named Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect human life and Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Every thought, every deed, every word that was a sin Jesus not only took up on his shoulders, he internalized and became on the cross. He became the substitute for my sin. He was raised from the dead. The more somebody spoke that to you, you know what was happening? A believing ability was arising in your being that was not there before. There must be something there that wasn't there before. That's how it works through the gospel. Objective faith produces subjective faith. And then subjective faith turns right around and substantiates and participates in objective faith. This is Hebrews 11.1. Hebrews 11.1 says faith, now this time faith is subjective faith, faith is the substantiation of things not seen. All of these objective facts, all of the objective faith we're going to look at tonight are things you cannot see, except for the first one, the Bible. But you can't see that it's the word of God inspired by God. All of that is, is a belief. It's not seen. It's not seen. Uh, it's not like an objective fact, like the sky is blue. Those unseen facts, which are the objective faith, our believing ability participates in and substantiates. Those things become real to us in our experience. So I think this is awesome. Objective faith produces subjective faith. Subjective faith substantiates and participates in objective faith. Okay, let's go ahead and read our top verse here. Titus 1, 4. Y'all see that at the top? Read that. Ready, set, go. Titus, genuine child, according to the common faith. 
Okay, so there it is. There's where that phrase appears in the Bible, common faith, the common faith. Uh, so this is kind of our launch, launching verse here. Titus was a genuine child. That means he was born again of God uh, according to the common faith. So you, there again, you see the common faith is not just something you know and you kind of check off the box to kind of prove your orthodoxy. Common faith produces you as a genuine child of God because of your subjective faith participates in these facts that Jesus is the Son of God. It's awesome. Okay, so what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to look at why is this important, and then Reese is going to look at what isn't. So that's how we're breaking it down tonight. I'm just the opening act. I'm the wedge buster. Anybody know what a wedge buster is? Anyone play football? Wedge buster is the dude who runs down the field on kickoff and just hits people. So I'm not going to hit you tonight, but he, he opens holes. Is that what it is, Chris? Something like that, right? He opens holes. How would you describe it? He opens holes. Or like the running back, right? Or whoever's got the ball. Anyways, how would you, how would you say it? He opens holes. He opens holes. There we go. That's what we're sticking with tonight. So I'm busting open a big hole for Reese to run in and score the touchdown with what is it? But before, before we see what is it, we got to be impressed. Why is it important? So already, hopefully, your spirit is kind of getting stirred up. Objective faith, man, it's, it's common, but it's special, and it's valuable. And it's through the common faith that we can even have a believing ability. And our believing ability in these facts and in these objective truths, it's through that believing ability that we participate in these points. We participate in the death of Christ. It's not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. We participate in the resurrection of Christ. Paul said we can know his resurrection power. We even participate in his ascension. You're sitting there taking that test, and you're not seated in the classroom. You're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Okay, let's look at I've got three points. Why is it important? Let's read point one. Ready, set, go. Because the faith is the contents of God's economy. And let's read this verse all together. 1 Timothy 1, 3, and 4. Ready, set, go. Charge certain ones not to teach different things, which produce questionings rather than God's economy, which is in faith. Okay, so this is Paul writing to Timothy uh, near the end of his life, and he tells him, hey, you need to charge certain people. Tell them officially. Officially charge them to not teach anything other than God's economy. Okay? So I know some of you guys may not be uh, super clear on what God's economy is. So I'll give you a very short definition. God's economy is his arrangement to distribute himself. Very simple definition of God's economy. It's his arrangement. That's where the kind of the, the root word, uh, Greek, the, Greek, uh, the root Greek word is kind of telling us it's an arrangement. And in that arrangement, what kind of arrangement is it? It's an arrangement for a distribution. <coughs> so like, the you know, every country has an economy in which we're measuring the distribution of the limited resources of a country to the capita, the, you know, the, cap, the people in the, in the uh, country. Well, God is also, God also has an arrangement and he wants to distribute something. What does he want to distribute? Himself. Himself. And that economy is in faith. In other words, the common faith is a summary description of all of God's operation in the universe to distribute himself to humanity. Isn't that awesome? And so in other words, 
If you can learn the common faith, these points Reese is going to give you, you will have a grasp on the biggest picture available to what's going on in the universe. God's distribution of God in Christ as the Spirit producing salvation. Isn't that awesome? Is that important? Say that's important. Do you believe that, Dale? Is that subjective faith or objective faith? <laughs> objective faith right here. God's economy is in faith. In other words, you could say it's contained. It's the contents of the faith. All right, let's look at number two. Let's read point two all together. Ready, set, go. And let's read this verse in Galatians 1. Ready, set, go. He who was formerly persecuting us is now announcing as the gospel the faith which formerly knew that. Okay, so here it is. Underline right there. Announcing as the gospel what? What is Paul announcing as the gospel? The faith. The faith. So why is knowing the common faith important? Because when you want to preach the gospel, when you want to share, quote, quote, your faith, with somebody, what are you going to tell them? You're going to tell them basically the eight points that Reese is going to show us. That's what you share. And you may not share every point explicitly, and I think Reese is going to touch on this, but in our gospel presentation, all of this is implied. And it's all connected. It's like a chain. They're all linked up together. And we pretty much stress Jesus is God who died for our sins and he was raised, and you can receive him. You know, we, we stress something pretty simple like that, but Reese is going to show us how all of that is uh, connected, and it implies all the other points you may not be explicitly addressing. So it's kind of cool. Um, I'm not going to be able to have time to uh, get into this, but if you look at the book of Acts, Peter speaks five sermons, five gospel messages in the book of Acts. Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, and Acts 10. And if you study those five messages, what you'll find is he pretty much he pretty much hits every point of the eight points that Reese is going to give us as the common faith. So when he when Peter is sharing the gospel, you think Peter knew how to share the gospel? That's what Jesus said you're going to do. That's why I called you to be a fisher of men. Peter preaches the gospel by just basically presenting these eight points. So if you feel like, man, I'm struggling, I don't know how to share the gospel. You got to listen up tonight. Okay. So these, these eight points you could say is basically the who and the what of the gospel. It's the who and the what of the gospel. Who's doing something in the gospel? The gospel means good news. It's a story. Who are the main characters and what are the main plot points? That's what the common faith is. It makes up the irreducible core of our story. The main characters and the main plot points. Such that... If you misidentify the characters or you misunderstand the plot, you're telling a different story. I'll say that again. These are the main characters and the main plot points of the story, such that if you misidentify the characters, who is Jesus? We've got to identify who is Jesus. Is he just a good guy? Smart guy, a religious guy, a reformer, you know, a Jew, just a Jew, just a prophet, just a Messiah. If, if that's all we stop at, we've misidentified the main character. Jesus is God. Okay? If we misidentify the characters or if we misunderstand the plot, then we're telling a different story. We're telling a different gospel. In other words, if we misunderstanding the plot, 
For instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, some people were saying in the church that there was no such thing as resurrection. That's a misunderstanding of the plot. And that becomes a different story, and that's not the good news anymore. Paul explicitly says that in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, let's go on to our third point here. Oh, well, let me say this real quick on um, point two. The gospel story in the gospels, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can think of that as the movie, all right? That's the movie of Jesus' life and death. And all Christians have seen the same movie, and that's the basis of our, our commonality. Now, what is the epistles? What are Paul's epistles, Peter's epistles, John's epistles? You can think of that as the director's commentary. So we all saw the movie. The common faith Reese is going to give you, that's why it's so simple. It's just basically facts. It's plot points. Jesus, who is he? What did he do? He lived, he died, he rose, he ascended, he's coming back. You can receive him. Very simple storyline. But the director's commentary is a lot of interpretation. A lot of Paul going, you know, what we were doing in this scene, you got to understand, you know, Jesus is coming here and he's God. Don't forget he's God. So when he says he can forgive sins, that's an indication he's God. You get that. And when he died, you got to understand, he's not just dying. He's releasing the divine life. He's tearing down the dividing ordinances. He's crushing Satan. All that's director's commentary. All of that's interpretation. And so in the interpretation, there is sometimes a variety of interpretation but that should never divide us, okay? And Christians are right to have their own opinion. Paul says it. So things like the Millennium Kingdom, all of that's director's commentary. So that takes us to our third point, and I'm going to pass it to Reese. Let's read point number three. Ready, set, go. Because the faith is the basis of our one. And let's read Ephesians 4.13. Ready, set, go. All right, so there it is. The oneness of the faith. We need to arrive at something, and we need to arrive at being one with all Christians from all different cultural backgrounds, all different continents, with all of their different understandings of the interpretation of the story, and we need to receive them. Paul says this. We need to receive them. We need to not despise them, and we need to be able to have free, uh, enjoyable, <coughs> life-giving fellowship with Christians who differ from us. So if someone doesn't believe like we believe about the Millennium Kingdom, if you understand the common faith, you should be able to have rich, life-giving, free, body-building fellowship with that person without trying to convince them that, you know, the whole time, like trying to twist their arm. Okay, the sad history of Christianity, this has not been the case right now. There's 38,000 denominations as of 2010. So the result, of, the, the reason, or the source of those denominations was a lot of differences of opinions that broke oneness. And unfortunately, Christ's body is divided. So we want to get clear and not become a problem to the oneness. Okay, so we, do we understand why it's important? It's the content of God's economy. It's, the, it's what we preach as the gospel, and it's the basis of our oneness. Okay, Reese is going to come up and tell you what is it. Okay. So I'm Reese. Maybe some of you don't know me. I've been gone for a few months. I graduated in December, so hello for those of you who don't. Um, so I'm just going to walk us through these points and kind of give a little commentary on um, why they're important. And kind of like Kyle was saying, um, even our reasons for why these are important, all the things we're going to list, those themselves aren't even necessarily the common faith. But the, the objective faith is these eight points, okay? But we're going to get into why they're so important. 
for us to believe. Um, and so let's read the first point together and then the verse underneath it. The Bible is the complete divine revelation, inspired word by word by God through the Holy Spirit. All scripture is God breathed and profitable for future. Amen. Okay, so the first point of our common faith is actually where we're going to get all the other points. Because to have a common faith, we have to have a common source, right? Um, and so this verse tells us that the Bible itself is actually a divine book. Right. It is a it is a uh, divine revelation inspired word by word. And if you read the verse prior to that, you'd realize the Bible is able to make you wise unto salvation. So it's able to do that. And then verse after this, it says that the man of God can be made complete. Okay, so the Bible itself is fully sufficient and it's fully divine and it's powerful to make us be saved. So this is the first crucial point and it's the source of everything else that we're going to get into. Okay. Um, there's other verses, Second Peter talks about that when they, uh, these people who are writing the Bible, they were being born by the Holy Spirit. He's like the wind in their sails while they're going. And then in Galatians, Paul says, if anyone comes preaching anything in addition to or on top of this, let him be accursed. Okay, so we have no extra revelation and a side book, right? This distinguishes us from, you know, all these other groups that have extra, you know, books, right? Book of Mormon would be one. I mean, there's a lot of different examples. That, that we do not have additional revelation. The scriptures are sufficient, okay, to make us complete, okay? Um, okay, so after this point, all we're going to get into is kind of what Kyle's talking about with the characters and um, the plot points. And kind of all Christian creeds that have been written or developed, which are kind of expressions of the common faith, they talk about two main things, and that is the person and work of Christ. Okay, so that's what we're going to be getting into, the person and the work of Christ. Um, So which I I thought maybe it would be good if we didn't go uh, necessarily in the order that it's written out here. Because, um, you know, when the early Christians, when they were when they're experiencing all this firsthand, um, they kind of actually went about it a different way. Um, So I've actually I've been reading recently. um, I'll tell you what I'm talking about in this example. I've been reading recently The Lord of the Rings, okay? It's a great book. Um, And you realize, you know, the the Lord of the Rings opens up with a word on the hobbits. A word on hobbits, an epic chapter, the first chapter on hobbits is what it's called. There's a (laughs) hobbit in a hole. Anyways, hobbits are this super mysterious creature. And Tolkien tries to explain what a hobbit is in the first, you know, chapter. But really, you have no way to understand what a hobbit is until you read the whole Lord of the Rings, and you realize there is something different about this kind of creature. Like you, it's by their acts that you then realize what a hobbit is. Same with Boromir. He, you know, he uh, he seems like this great man, uh, but as you go on throughout the story, you realize there's something, uh, you know, corrupt in his heart, and he tries to steal the ring from Frodo, and you realize Boromir is a different type of person. So in the same way, Christ, though we could talk about just all that he is objectively, in what he did on Earth you begin to realize what kind of a person he is. And so we're going to talk about the work of Christ first. Uh, So let's actually skip to point four. Can you guys read point four with me? Christ died on the cross for our sins, shedding his blood for our redemption. And let's read uh, the verse underneath it. I deliver to you, first of all, that which also I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. All right, so here Paul says, first of all, 
So he's like, this is the first point. This is of utmost importance. This is what's before everything else. This is what I delivered to you, to the Corinthians. And the first thing that he delivers to them is that Christ died for your sins. So this is the first point of our faith. Uh, you know, not many people would disagree that Christ died, right? I mean, unless you're uh, a Muslim or you're some conspiratist, like everybody's going to believe Christ died. Um, but there's this point about for our sins, which is really crucial. And you have to circle four. He died for a purpose. There's many people who believe that Christ died and he is a great example to humanity of, you know, standing against, you know, the darkness, you know, in a loving fashion. We should follow him and, you know, follow his pattern and we should die to the world. Uh, but that is not the crucial point of Christ dying. What happened on the cross is actually something very mysterious and something that applies to us directly. Right. And, and I just want to say, first of all, right, he says at the end there, according to the scriptures. Yeah. So just to make it clear, this is all according to the scriptures. The scriptures is the source of our common faith. OK, so. Um, OK, so one thing's implied here, and that is that we actually have a problem. Right. He died for our sins. We actually are sinners. All of humanity is a bunch of sinners. Um, I don't know if you guys have been tracking with the, uh, the Bible reading. Recently, I, but it's actually really good for like this topic. If you have um, in Romans, we've been, done the first three chapters of Romans, and Paul is just like basically sharing on the common faith. You can say. Um, so I was impressed with these verses. Uh, let me know if you if you get too convicted, and I can just stop. But this is kind of his his description of humanity. They're filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness. Malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity, whisperers, slanders, hateful to God, insolent, arrogant, boasters, inventors of evil things. And the list goes on and on. And this just characterized humankind. We are a bunch of sinners. We've marred the image of God. We've disobeyed him. We're in open rebellion against him. And we have a need for a savior. And so this is, the, this is a core tenet. And this is why we have a faith. We need salvation, right? Okay, so... What is the proper, I guess, penalty for sin? That's another big question, right? Um, you know, if I, if I, if I were to, um, you know, take your iPhone, right, and go sell it at a pawn shop, what would be the proper retribution for me to pay him? What would y'all think? Another iPhone? But what about, like, all that you've got on there, stored on there? You know? You've got a lot of, you know, investment in there. Maybe it's a bad example because you probably have iCloud and it'll be okay. But, you know, I mean, think about something bigger. Like, think about, like, the Mona Lisa. Okay, if I'm going to just, I throw, uh, you know, I sneak in, uh, what's the, what's the Lou? Is that what it's called? The Louvre? Yeah, and I throw some paint on the Mona Lisa, right? What's the value of that? You know, that's, that's not as replaceable. You go to prison, you know, I owe millions and millions. Can you put a price tag on it? And the thing is, with our sin... We don't recognize, I mean, it, if you were have a little child there with us at the Mona Lisa, and I threw some paint on it, the kid would probably laugh, right? He'd be like, I mean, this, is, this almost makes it better. It's like, you know, why are you guys freaking out? It's like, but that's like us with sin. We don't realize how much or who we've actually offended, right. who we're actually in rebellion against, and what exactly we've done by sinning against God and marring the image of God, which is what we are. And so the, for, to sin against an infinite God requires an infinite price, okay? And so when Christ died on the cross, he took all the penalty for our sin, all the righteous judgment of God 
that we deserved. And he took it upon himself and bore it in his body on the tree in 1 Peter 2. Okay, so when Christ died, he, he took our sins and the penalty for our sins. Okay, and the way we know that he actually paid the price for our sins, that that actually was um, sufficient according to God, is the next point. So can you guys read point five? Christ resurrected from among the dead on the third day. Yeah, and then the next verse, I mean, that's the, it's a continuation of his thought. This is part of the first of all. And that he was buried, he'd been raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so Christ's resurrection is also the crucial point, this crucial point in um, our common faith. And that God put his stamp of approval on the work that Christ did on the cross. He proved that he, this is not just any martyr who was, who was killed innocently and, you know, just like anyone else could have done. Actually, he was raised from the dead. God said, this is a righteous man. And what he's done, what he's paid... I, I approve. It's, you know, I, I got this example of someone. It's like you take a, um, you have a, a gift card, right? And you swipe it and it's like, oh, is it going to go through? I don't know if there's enough cash on there. I haven't checked the balance, but it's like it goes through and you're, you get the item, whatever. Um, in the same way, God put his stamp of approval on Christ's work. And on top of that, his resurrection implies so much for us. It means he conquered death, right? Death has no more hold on him. It means that all that he did is now in a living form. It's Christ living and he can apply it to us. It, I mean, it, there's so much there, right? He's the, I mean, he is now able, we're now able to be conformed to his image, right? All these wonderful points. Um, but Christ resurrected is a crucial point in our faith. And it should be the main content of what we preach is the gospel, really. Okay, and then the last, or the next point, point six, you want to read that together? Christ ascended to the right hand of God to be Lord of all. Okay, so let, actually let's read the verse too. While they were looking on, he was lifted up, and then a cloud took him away from their sight. Right, okay, so this, um, the reason why this point is so crucial too, is that all that Christ did, and this is part of the approval process, God said, you know, I approve of that. And actually he brought him to the heavenlies to be the sovereign Lord of all. And so now we say Jesus is Lord, right? I mean, he has ascended to the heavens. And why, as the one in the heavens, he can now intercede on our behalf to God. He can pray for us. He can, he can bear witness, you know, to, to before God that we're always, you know, we're justified. You know that song, Before the Throne of God Above? I have a strong and perfect plea, right? The great and changeable I am, right? Okay, um... And then also another great thing in the heavens, he can now bestow uh, all of his riches to us. He can bestow the spirit to us and he can be giving us, fulfilling fulfilling God's economy. It says in Acts 2, he was made Lord and Christ of all. Lord is sovereign over the universe and Christ to carry out God's economy. Okay, so you hear all of this and this is the crux of Christ's work, you can say. And what does this tell us about his person? What does it tell us about who he is? Because, you know, many people had ideas of who Christ was, right? He's a great teacher. He's a, a prophet, maybe. He's a martyr. But in his resurrection and ascension and being enthroned above the universe, it became really clear that this is no ordinary man, right? No ordinary man could have done this. And so let's go actually up to point three now. Can y'all read that together? The Son of God, even God himself, was incarnated to be a man by the name of 
of Jesus Christ. Right. And John 1 and 1, 1 and 14, I'm sure you all know these verses. The word, right, was God and the word became flesh. We realize in his work, it's made so clear this is actually God incarnate. This is God himself. Jesus Christ was fully man. Um, only a man could have paid the price. Blood was the price that was required. He was a real man. Um, and, and he can now sympathize with us. It's so important that he's a man. But also, it's so crucial that we realize this was God himself. Only God himself can forgive sins. And Christ came claiming he has the authority to forgive sins, right? And only, uh, only God himself could conquer death, right? I mean, it says death in Acts 2 was not able to hold him. How, I mean, what man is this? Surely this is God himself. And so you realize that death had no hold on him. And then also um, that his life was worth it. His life was worthy of all of us. You know, if I, if I were to, to kill Matt right now, right? Okay. How, what kind of price would that cost? Surely at the minimum it would be my life. Who can put a value on you? I mean, life for life, right? But I mean, to, for the, the sin of the whole world, Right? The sin of all people before him, he, it said in Romans, right? He's, he was, what is it? What does it say? He was holding back or um, what did he passed over? The sins of old, right? So the sins of the people of old and the sins of the people to come, even us, his life was that worth it. He must be God himself. No other life would be so worth it, right? Okay, so this is Jesus the Lord. Okay, this is Jesus, God incarnate. Okay, so this is our understanding of who he is. And so now let's actually go to, um, to point seven. Whenever any person thanks to God and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is regenerated and becomes a member of the body of the Christ. Okay, so what are, what are the two requirements in that point? Repents and believes. That's all that it takes to be to be saved is really what we're saying here, to be saved. So repentance, right? Um, that is to repent of all all your your old ways or all that you all you did before, right? You're turning away from that, your heart of unbelief. It even says in Hebrews, right, we um we turn away from uh, dead works to serve the living God. You turn away from all that you maybe were even trying to do from God. You're turning away from even yourself, and you're saying, I believe in Jesus Amen. and all that he's done. That's where I'm going to put my, my hope. That's where I'm putting my, my chips Amen. in Jesus and what he accomplished. And so actually, right, um, y'all probably know the verses in, in Romans 10. Anyone, right, confesses with his mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believes in his heart, he'll be saved. So um, y'all may not know this. Um, Lord, actually, in the Greek, is the translation of the Hebrew word for Jehovah. At a certain point, they stopped using Jehovah. They just started calling him Lord, which was like Adonai, right? And, and you translate that into Greek, it's Lord. So to actually say Jesus is Lord is to say Jesus is God. He's the one who's enthroned. He is Lord of all. And so if we repent of our old you know, heart of unbelief, our old dead works, our old everything, and we confess faith in Jesus, that's all you need to be saved. That's all that it takes. And we need to hear that every day, right? I mean, every day you might fail, you have a sin, you have a recurring sin, and maybe you think, okay, things have changed now. Um, you know, maybe the requirement's different for me because I've been failing. You're basically taking your chips and you're acting like it's me now, like it's actually me that is needed to be righteous. 
We have to continually realize Jesus is Lord. What Amen. he's done is sufficient. If God was satisfied with what happened on the cross, then I'm satisfied. Amen. Okay, so now we have um, this. I guess the, the final point of that would be that when you believe, God actually gives his spirit to you. The Holy Spirit comes within you, right? I mean, that's part of what happens when you believe. God puts his spirit in you as a seal, sealing you unto the day of redemption. And so now... Our understanding of God might be really confusing because I thought there's this God in the heavens and then there's this one on the earth. He was called the son of God. And now there's this Holy Spirit in me. And it's like, what on earth? I thought we had one God. And how many? I mean, now we have three gods, right? That's that might be the confusing thought. And so let's go actually back to point number two. Can I read that? God is uniquely one. Yeah, try you, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Go ahead and read the two verses too. For there is one God. Go therefore and disciple all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Alright, so now in the New Testament, it's made very clear that this God that we worship is both one and three. Amen. And you have to deal with that. Okay? It's, we baptize them into the one name of these three distinct things. I don't know. Father, Son, and Spirit. Not the three names. The one name of the three. Paul's blessing people, right? He says, you know, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And actually, there's this really interesting one. Um, it, in Deuteronomy, it talks about uh, Hero Israel, the Lord of God is one, the Shema, you know. In, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul splits the Shema and he says, We have one God, Father of all, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. One God, Father of all, or one Lord and God of all. Now he like splits it. Anyways, it's really crazy and we can't, nobody can explain it. But our God is triune. And it's wonderful because this is what allows him to carry out his economy. Amen. Now he's able to, to plan everything as a sovereign God. He's arranged this economy. He sent his son to do all of this for us. And now the spirit can apply everything that Christ has accomplished into us. Amen. So Christ's death on the cross, it might have you know, been for the sins of the world. But until you believe, it has no effect on you. And once you believe, it has an effect because the Spirit came in and applied it to you. He made you the very righteousness of God. That verse in, that Kyle referenced in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He who knew no sin became sin that you might become the righteousness of God. So he makes us righteous because the Spirit is, applies the righteousness of Christ to us. This is wonderful. So now everything's applicable to us. Um, but all this is wonderful. You know, I'm not going to hell, right? I'm, I've got my sins forgiven, Christ in me. He's doing all this wonderful stuff. But then I'm going to die, right? We still die. And then, and then what? What's kind of the, the hope, I guess? And so that's where we come to the last point. And this is the final point of our common faith. So let's read that together. Christ is coming then to receive his believers to himself. Amen. Let's read the verse two. Amen. Okay, so we have a great hope now. We, we've, we've been forgiven of our sins. 
The Spirit's in us. He can save us from all the power of sin. He can save us from our vain manner of life. He can conform us to the image of Christ. But of, of all, what we expect is to be raised on the last day. For Christ to raise us up at his coming and to establish his kingdom forever. Right? So when he comes again, he's going to deal the final blow to death and sin. Though their power's already been annulled. He's already won the victory. When he comes openly and manifestly, he's going to actually deal with it once for all. Get rid of it. Cast it away. Death will be thrown into the lake of fire. Sin will be done away with. All rebellion will be crushed. And Christ will reign with us forever and ever. So this is the hope of us. This is our, this is our hope that Christ will come again. He will raise us up and we will, and we will be with him forever. So this is the content of our common faith. Um, as Kyle said, you know, this is, this is not to be trivialized. We, we need to speak this to each other every day. We need to speak this to ourselves, especially the crux of Christ has died for my sins and has raised. And hopefully y'all can see how they all, you know, fit together. But, but yeah, that's it. Uh, that's, that's all I have. So um, maybe I can pray. Yeah. Okay. Lord Jesus, we love you. Lord, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Lord, thank you for dying for our sins. Lord, thank you for even uh, resurrecting from the dead, making clear all that you've accomplished. Lord, we see you in your resurrection. We see you in your ascension. And we believe in you with our hearts. We confess that Jesus is Lord. Amen.